sinners, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're deep in our series here called Glittering Vices, looking at the seven deadly sins. And uh, I don't know about you, but for some of you, this could be pretty potent stuff, especially on certain weeks. I had a woman come up to me. She's on the retreat this weekend. And she came up to me and she's like, man, it feels like every week you're talking to me. I was like, join the club. I mean, I put these sermons together, and like I preach them to myself before I preach them to anyone else, and I feel it every week. But I especially feel it this week regarding anger. All right? We're talking about anger today, and, and what, uh, what I want to say here initially is this, that I think more than anything else, this particular sin, if you will, this particular vice, better describes our society today than anyone else, any other uh, vice for that matter. Uh, There's this uh, article written by a man named Jeffrey Kluger for Time Magazine. The worst mass shooting was in 2017. Some of you will remember this, Las Vegas. And after that shooting, he wrote an article about our culture, about its connection with anger. Listen to what he said at one point there. He said this, Americans have made something of a fetish of our rage of late, a fact that's even been leaking into our language. The base is never just animated it's always enraged. Healthcare debates are never spirited. They're always furious. In the run-up to the 2016 election, a CNN ORC poll found that 69% of Americans reported being either very or somewhat angry at the state of the nation. And my guess is that percentage has only gone up since then. So what do we do about that? Well, one of the things that I want to kind of leave you in initially here is this picture of confusion, because this picture of anger that I've already mentioned sounds pretty negative, right? And yet, the problem with it is Scripture doesn't agree. In fact, listen to what it says. This is Paul in that passage we read earlier in the service, Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to what he says in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Okay, but listen to what he says in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. So what is it, Paul? Is it Get rid of all anger, or is it to be angry? The answer, of course, is yes. See, Jesus himself was like this. Jesus is the one who preached the passage on Matthew 5, where he links anger to murder. But in Mark chapter 3, when he's healing a man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees go down on him regarding this and saying, well, who are you to to do this on the Sabbath? And you know what it says there in Mark chapter 3, verse 15? Anger was kindled in his heart towards them. And then, of course, let's not even talk about tossing the tables over in the temple. Jesus himself reflected the tension of anger. You see, in this series so far, we've been talking about vice and virtue, right? There's a vice, and and it's never a good thing. And then there's the virtue that's opposite. 
Like last week, for instance, we talked about greed. And despite what Gordon Gekko says in the movie Wall Street, greed is not good. So there's no like positive form of greed. But yet with anger, this vice is also a virtue, it turns out. That's the tension. That's the confusion. And so this morning, what I want us to do is wade into that confusion. Because I think for a lot of us in here, we are confused. When is anger appropriate? When is it not appropriate? So let's dive in together. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to see a few things. First, I want to see the longing of anger. There's something that's, that's godly in anger. We're going to look at that. Second, the perversion of anger speaks for itself. Then finally, the healing of anger. And I want you to notice what I said there. I didn't say healing from anger. Healing of anger. That's going to be really important here. So let's jump into the first thing. And let's look at the psalm here, verses 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. This is a really long psalm. Uh, We're only looking at the first nine verses. But 13 different times in the psalm, the psalmist talks about wickedness. Talks about wicked deeds and evil practices. And we don't know what the the context is, but clearly the psalmist is dealing with something that's unjust. And that speaks to really the heart of the longing. The heart of the longing here of anger is to deal with injustice. That's the reason why in verses 5 and 6 there it talks about, May your righteousness, may your justice be like the noonday sun. May it rise to the occasion. May it be front and center. And so let me give you a definition of what injustice is. Injustice is the violation of God's order of things. Let me say that again. Injustice is the violation of God's order of things. And the reason why we get angry, rightfully so, at injustice is because it is a violation of creation itself. It is a violation of dignity. It is a violation of how God has designed the world, His order of things. And, and just recently, I saw this in my own family, a good uh, picture of this. Uh, Carly, my middle daughter, she came home and, and she was deeply upset because there was a boy that was bullied on her bus. And she, it was being filmed by some of the perpetrators. It was crazy, you know, the stuff that was going on. She was describing it and it was heinous, it was awful. And she was wrapped around an axle about it, you know. She was bent out of shape. And, and she was angry, she was upset, she's like... I want something to be done about this. And so, and so she made sure that something was done about it, that it was reported. And, and it took courage on her part because there was no guarantee that the bullies wouldn't find out that she was the one that reported them. And justice came to the place of injustice in that situation. We found out later on. And it was dealt with. The bullies were dealt with. And I was so proud of her. You know, that was a good... And the reason why she felt that way is because she's made in the image of God. And she saw the image of God in other people violated. And so whether it's a person or whether it's an object, the image of God, the order of things being violated. And so what is the source of this longing? The source is God Himself. Because God is angry. You're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's talk about that for a second, if that feels a little bit odd to you in your modern sensibilities. Listen to what Exodus 34, 6 says about God. This is God speaking to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, you maybe have heard that verse before, and often we'll look at this and say, Yeah, he's slow to anger, he's patient, he's long-suffering. Exactly. But it doesn't say that he's not angry. We, we miss that part. And so what I want you to see there is, you know, he does get angry. And that's important because just a few chapters before this in Exodus, 
Do you remember this? God calls Moses to go to the Pharaoh in Egypt. He's like, all right, Moses, here's the deal. You're going to go and you're going to tell them, let my people go. Now, if you know Exodus chapter 3, you know that Moses puts up roadblock after roadblock. He's like, no, 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 I, I can't go. Uh, what, what, if they, what if they say no to me? What if the Pharaoh is upset with me? What if they don't believe me? So one after another, the Lord responds by saying, look, I, I am who I am. I'm the sovereign in the universe. I have the power to deal with this. Just trust me on that. And Moses is like, I, I don't know. And so he says, all right, throw down your staff. Right, I'm going to show you a little power in action here. And it becomes a snake. And he says, now pick it up. He picks the snake up and it becomes a staff again. He says, now, now put your hand inside your cloak. Now pull it out. Oh, it's leprous. Now put it back in. Now pull it back out again. Oh, it's no longer leprous. Don't you see? I have the power over everything. And after all of that, Moses says, pick someone else. And what you see in verse 14 of Exodus 3 is the long fuse of God's wrath coming to a close. And suddenly, in verse 14, he's angry because he's given Moses opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And if you've ever seen the film Prince of Egypt, by DreamWorks Studios, Steven Spielberg. Some of you, I mentioned this to you before, that I worked in a ministry organization beforehand. We had the opportunity to put a study guide together for the film. Great opportunity to work with DreamWorks on that. But the film itself does a great job of showing the long-suffering, the patience of God, that suddenly there's a problem. <laughs> and he sort of explodes in the moment. Then he gets soft again and kind again towards Moses. That is our God. That when there is injustice, when there's a violation... Right? When there's stubbornness, right? There's a way to love. But we're going to come back to that. I want you to hold on to that, that four-letter word. It's a good word there. Love. And how it's related here to anger. But I want you to see this. That, that the reason why we have this deep abiding longing is because we have a God in whose image we're made who knows how to get properly angry. Now, remember what I said earlier about the, the modern sensibility. The idea that God is wrathful. That God is angry. That is not a sermon you will typically hear especially in a liberal environment like our city. But let me tell you why it's so important. I want you to think about Ukraine right now. I mean, who's not thinking about it? Who's not thinking about the injustice, the violation of the order of things that's happening in that nation because of the invasion? Now, I want you to think about that. Because there is a theologian, and this theologian lived in what's called Yugoslavia, a country that was once put together because of the Soviet Union, ironically. And then it fell apart after the fall of the Soviet Union. And then there are all these different ethnicities that are fighting against each other. You had the Serbs and the Croats. And the name of the theologian was Miroslav Volf, who's still alive. And he tells a story in a work called Exclusion and Embrace about, about what happened. About when, when the Serbs were, were pillaging and when they were raping and they committed uh, genocide against his people. And as a young Christian, he wrestled and he struggled with, who is God in light of what's happened to my people? And how do, I, how do I find a place for anger in the midst of all this? And he wrestled and he struggled. And then he moved to America. He moved to the West. And what he discovered there was a different version of God. Where they didn't find a place for the wrath of God in a modern society. And I want to read to you a quote about that. And I want you to think about Ukraine as I read this quote. It's, it's a bit long, but I think it's worth it. So listen to what it says here. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, 
I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate, since God is the perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Now, he is someone who has a right to write that down. He is someone who has wrestled mightily about what is the character of God. And he came to the realization that he could not believe in the God of Christianity without also believing that he's a God who turns over tables, you see. And that is a misunderstanding to believe that if God is love, that he's also not angry. And what you find is that true redemptive anger, the root of it is love. It has to be, as we're going to see as we move through this here, through these texts here. And so this gets to the the, the heart of the longing here. The heart of the longing of God is to right the wrongs of the world, you see. It is to destroy sin without destroying the sinner. You follow? And that's the root of love there. The root of redemption, as it were. Righteous anger always has embedded in it an invitation. It is a warning, but it is an invitation to the sinner, to the system that's broken. It is an invitation to do better. It is an invitation to say, you don't have to align yourself with evil. You don't have to align yourself with violation or injustice. Instead, to be brought back through redemption, to be brought back through love to the order of things, to the flourishing of life. That's what good anger always does. If you're a parent this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a proper anger that you can have even towards your children with the purposes of bringing them back as opposed to destroying them. And if you're a parent, you also know that's not always easy to do. But as I conclude this first point, I want to say something else here, very important. Because I think that there's a practice and there's a belief within the Christian church today that says anger is a bad thing. And I think clearly you can see that how I'm addressing it here and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. And let me, let me say this. If you never get angry in your life, that's a problem. That's not a sign of God's holiness. It is not a sign of God's glory. It is a denial of God's glory. In fact, quite the opposite. Now, that may be hard to hear, but let me say what it's actually a sign of. It's probably more likely it's a sign of apathy or sloth, as we talked about in one of the earlier sermons here. I mean, in other words, you don't care enough about the world to be angry enough at sin. That wherever you see it, you're not angry enough at it. And so... As we're going to see here, the option here is not to be less angry. It's to get more angry, actually. And so if that's your struggle this morning, let me say, become more like God. By learning about what is anger here. And so that's part of the equation here. But here's the other part of it. It's the second point. And that's something that both myself and I'm sure a lot of us in here are much more at home with, let's say. And that is the perversion of anger. What is perversion? Well, perversion, by very definition, is it is a perversion of a good thing that we've already talked about. 
So what does that perversion of anger look like? It looks like this. It is saying, I want justice now on my timing. In other words, it is the right thing gone about the wrong way. That's what the perversion of anger is. Remember what we said about, about, yes, he gets angry, but he's slow to anger. There's a long fuse. You know how long that fuse was for Israel? Centuries in the making. The prophets like Isaiah and some of the other minor prophets, they for centuries, one after another, after another, after another, were saying, hey, if you keep going in this direction, you're going to end up in exile. Hey, if you keep doing this, you're going to end up over here. Right? And so century after century, prophet after prophet, God was long-suffering. He was patient. He was slow in His anger and that holiness. But you see, I think that's important to see because what are we like when we get angry? I know this is true for me. Like, I have a short fuse sometimes. Like, it's not a long fuse, a slow burn. No, quite the opposite. And quite, quite often, in fact. You know, that can be. And so what are we supposed to see here? I think we're supposed to see this is really, I think, the heart of where our society is today. I was reading an article in Vox magazine this week. It was an excellent article. It was a secular article written by a secular journalist. And the article is about forgiveness and rage. And in particular, she was talking about in the social media, the cancel culture, and the toxicity of cancel culture, and how so many reputations have been ruined for a lifetime. People have dealt with their sins of the past, those tweets and those Instagram images and other things that they've said and done in the past. And then someone uh, comes of age and they, they find it. That person becomes famous now and they find what they've said and they bring it back and they rehash everything. You know what I'm talking about. And, and you, you know what it's like, even apart from that. Like you read an article in your social media feed, that, that tweet, and, and you see those comments and it's like instant rage, isn't it? Like you feel it, they feel it in the comment section. They don't want to redeem anyone. They want to destroy. We know that. That is our culture through and through. And if we're honest, sometimes we participate in that. This is really the heart of that, that perversion here. And it's to destroy, not to redeem. That brings us to the passage that Jesus brings us to. Matthew 5. I want you to hear verses 21 and 22. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount where he links murder with anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, I said earlier that I know something about this. Some of you don't know this, but uh, in fact, most of you don't, but Kirshen was in an auto accident. Uh, several weeks ago. And, and so she was rear-ended. It wasn't her fault. And so it was my car. And so we took my car in. And so it sat on a, at a, a tow lot for like 10 days. And we were pretty sure there's a scam going on because the longer that a car stays at a tow lot, the more storage fees they get accrue every day. And it goes to the multi-billion dollar insurance agency, in our case, State Farm. And so State Farm, you know, what's, what's a you know, few hundred dollars to them, right? Right, and so, but to this tow lot, that was, I guess, a lot of money for them, and so, and so, day after day, our car was not being picked up and towed to the proper place so it could be worked on. Finally, it did. I mean, literally, Kirsten spent six to eight hours on the phone making this work, and after after ten or eleven days, it gets there, and then it gets there, and then we get jerked around again, and you know, for eleven days, I have been dealing with my anger. And so giving it to the Lord, I, I get a little bit angry, then I, I take it back a notch. I get angry again. I say, like, all right, 
all right, patience, timing, whatever like that. And then it gets to that lot, and then we get yanked around, and something just flipped in me. And I blew up in a way that I have not blown up in years on Tuesday of this week. Talk about timing, right? I mean, I blew up. Now, I wasn't on the phone. Remember, it was Kirsten was on the phone, but I was in the background doing color commentary, if you know what I mean. And it was bad, y'all. It was bad, right? I'm sure he could hear through, through uh, Kirsten on the phone. In fact, at one point she said, that's my husband you hear behind me. And so, so she gets off the phone, and I'm just fuming. I'm still stewing. And I literally said, I literally said, verse 22 here, I said, that idiot, right? And as soon as I said that, the Holy Spirit's like, hey, you're preaching on that this week. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> you're preaching on that. I was like, gosh, that's my life, you know? You know like, like I've, I've been, decades, I've been working on this, and, and I have gotten better. My kids know that, that I've gotten better. But, but man, in that moment, and why, what, what did I want then? I didn't want to redeem the mechanic, y'all. I did not want to redeem the situation. I wanted to destroy that company. I'm, I'm, in all of my power, I thought, I had power that I, if I could, I would destroy the people that were in my way. And that's the heart of the perversion. Is to play God in the worst form of good. The worst aspects of that, you see. There's this verse in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And often what we read in that is, oh, that's, uh, that's tit for tat. That's just making a problem worse. Actually, quite the opposite. Because of the nature of anger. The nature of anger is that we blow up and then when we harm someone, they come back harder, right? And so the whole idea of the eye for eye was actually legislative morality, if you will. It was the Lord saying, no, no, if someone plucks that out, you cannot, ju- judicialness, righteousness is never to go beyond the offense. But what anger does when it boils, when it's explosive, when it's out of control, is it always goes above and beyond the actual violation. See, righteous anger, loving anger, the desire there is not to destroy, it's to redeem. But when, when it's destructive, when it's perverse like that, it always wants to go beyond what seems to be the offense and destroy the wrongdoer along with the violation here. I See, I think this gets to the heart of everything. I was uh, chatting with a few people this morning about neuroscience. And one of the things that we're learning in neuroscience, I mean, I'm just a pastor. They actually do this for a living. But, but one of the things that... Uh, what we're learning is, is about the nature of the brain. I mean, you talk about, about the, the, like the, the last frontier. It feels like it's learning about the brain and how it relates to the body. And one of the things that we're learning is, you know, there are two systems of the brain in particular, limbic and reptilian. And the limbic system is where we have the neocortex. And the neocortex, that's where rational thinking takes place, right? And in the, in the reptilian brain, it's called the amygdala section of the brain. What happens is when you have stimuli that come into the brain, where do they go first? They actually go first to the amygdala. And it's just milliseconds difference. The, 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 but when the stimuli comes to the amygdala, it reacts first before it goes to your rational section, the neocortex. And here's why that's so important. They call it coding. And so how you code the stimuli makes a difference. This is why, by the way, when, you, when two people are in the same situation, they have completely different reactions. One, you, you say, oh, they went ballistic. Like, why do they respond that way? Let's say two people's reputation are maligned and one person uh, properly defends their reputation, but it's commensurate to the offense. But the other person just goes ballistic, we say. 
And we're like, whoa, that was way more than what, what's happened here. Well, in neuroscience, one of the things we're learning is, is that the, it's the coding. And so when the code is read by the amygdala, it's fight or flight, baby, right? If it's read as a threat to you. That's what amygdala hijack, as they call it, is all about, right? And so this is why one of the things we're learning about in, in the area of psychology is the importance of trauma work. How we're learning about the importance of dealing with trauma because what trauma does in your past is it sends codes to the amygdala. It codes certain stimuli. And so that's the reason why, for instance, if, if you had a traumatic, as a child, a traumatic run-in with a dog, let's say, and then, and then you hear a dog and your, your heart races in a way that's like, whoa, it's just a dog barking, that sort of thing. What's that about? Well, there's a story there. And so it's, it, trauma is about doing story work. It's about, about going back and saying what's going on there. It's about, about it's resetting the code, if you will, right? So that's just one aspect. There's another way to look at it here. Think about the reputation thing again. So there's that coding of the stimuli. Neuroscience is scientifically allowing us to better understand how the brain works. But here's the other way to look at it, right? And that is to say, if your reputation is your everything, it's inordinate. So I talked about that last week. Something that's good is ordinate. Something that's made your everything ultimate. I must have it, and I must have it this way. When that's blocked, reputation this example, you go ballistic. What's happened? You've coded it. It may not be an issue of trauma in the past. That could be it, but, but maybe it's just that you have coded that your reputation is your everything. And so when that is maligned, it goes to amygdala, and it's hijacked. Fight or flight, baby. You see how that works? That's anger at work, perverse anger. And so we need to be recoded, as it were. And look at the outcome if that doesn't happen if we're not recoded. Now look at what it says in verse 8 of chapter 37. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. In other words, when you are the one who's God, you yourself, it says there, okay, it will tend towards evil. In other words, rather than healing chaos, you create more chaos. I'm going to tell you, I know something about that myself. And there's this writer I came across this week in an article called The Enigma of Anger. His name's Garrett Kaiser, and I felt like he was, he was saying what I would say if I was writing this. He said, my anger has often seemed out of proportion. That is too great or too little, more often too great for the occasion that gave rise to it. My anger has more often distressed those that I love than it has afflicted those at home I was angry at. And my anger has not carried me far enough toward changing what legitimately enrages me. See, the very point of our anger is to heal the chaos, and quite the opposite has happened. Frederick Beekner put it this way in Telling Secrets. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come. To savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you're giving back to them, in many ways, is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down at this feast is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. You see, when your anger is all-consuming, it's all-consuming. It consumes you in the process. And what does it say there in verse 22 of Matthew 5? We'll be judged. That sort of anger is consumed by God's wrath. And that means eternity, separation, hell. That's how important dealing with our anger is. That's how important it is to get back to good anger. And so how do we do that? Lastly here, this is where I conclude, the healing of anger. 
Not the healing from anger. Again, you get back to the longing, to the good thing that brings righteousness into the world. I think there are three things that, that we need to see here that will do that healing. Number one, it's a prayer of confession. All the Psalms, including Psalm 37, were originally were written as prayers. And many of them were prayers of confession. And again, we don't know the circumstances, but dealing with all this wickedness, and this person is wrestling in there and gets to a place saying, fret not yourself. He's speaking it to himself, by the way. Fret not yourself. Don't let this happen. But don't go to go, refrain from a wrathful form of eager that dis, anger that destroys. And so I think part of for those of us who are saying, and again, it doesn't have to be explosive anger. It could be that slow burn, resentful, grudge type anger as well, regardless of what it is that you've wrestled with, regardless of what it is that you've struggled with. It begins with prayer. And, and I think it's two-part confession. One is, uh, forgive me for, for playing God. Dan Allender says it really well. He's, he says that uh, the problem with perverse anger is always that, that we believe that God hasn't acted in a timely manner. We want justice. We're made for justice, but he has not acted in a timely manner. And so if he's not going to act in a timely manner, then, then we're going to take over. And we're going to make sure justice comes on our watch in our own time. And again, we know how that typically works. And so part of our confession is say, I need to stop being God. And I need to let you be God here. And then I think the second step in that, in that confession is to say, I am truly powerless. I think that I'm powerful. Anger makes me feel powerful. But the reality is I am powerless. I'm out of control. I feel uncontrollable rage. And so it is to admit what is true about you and me. That's the first thing. Second thing is to do exactly what it says here in the psalm, that is trust and wait. Look at verses 5 through 7. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. You see how he connects it here. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. There's that timing. I'm saying even when it doesn't make sense, even when, when you want, want to, to change the way that you've been treated in the workplace, or it's your spouse, or it's your child, it's the war in Ukraine, whatever it is, you know that in your own power, your lack of power, you cannot control them. You cannot control that situation. You cannot control that system. And so to say, God, you sit on your throne. And even though you're mysterious in your judgments, even though you're mysterious in your timing, I will trust that you alone are God and I'm not. And so you build on that prayer of confession. And you say, I'm going to trust you. Even though, even though amygdala hijack wants to take over here, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to wait upon your timing for these things. And I think what it does is it sets you up here for the last thing. And that is to see his anger in him. Say, what do you mean by that, Scott? See his anger. It's to join him in his anger. I mentioned Dan Allender, along with theologian Trimper Longman, a work called Cry of the Soul. Listen to what they said about joining God in his anger. Commit your way to the, excuse me, not that one. Pondering the character of God does not pacify anger. It deepens it. Our struggle is never that we are too angry but that we are never angry enough. Our anger is always pitifully small when it's focused against a person or object. It is meant to be turned against all evil and all sin, beginning first with our own failure to love. In order to deepen righteous anger, we must learn what it is to join 
the anger of God. How do we do that? And the answer is this. You see what God did to enjoin himself to destruction of evil, evil and anger. Where do we see God's anger fall? Upon the Son. What was the cost of God's anger? It didn't cost you your life. It cost him the life of his Son. Why? Why does God in his holiness, remember we've talked about what is the longing of justice, this longing behind anger, and because it's, it's God-soaked, because it's part of the image of God, because it's part of his character, he has to deal with anger because he's not perverse, because he is loving, because the root of redemptive anger is love. God had to deal with it because God is love. He deals with it by allowing to be visited upon his son rather than you. Don't you see? It is a good thing that God is a God of anger. It is a good thing that he's a God of wrath. And it's also a good thing that the other side of the coin is he's a God of love. Because of redemptive anger, because love and anger are two sides of the same coin, as it were. It is good news for you and for me. And so here's my hope and my prayer. My, my hope and my prayer is that you will turn to the root of love. You will return to that root and you will find yourself saying, how do I become redemptively angry in a way that brings life to the world, that brings flourishing of life to the places of injustice, to the places of violation? And when that happens, you will find that you will learn to will good in a way that brings forth true good and not chaos into the world. My prayer is that for, for those of you who tend more like me towards the perversion of anger to come back with love. For those of you who tend more towards sloth and apathy, that you would learn to love, learn to care so that you might grow in your anger, but regardless, to come back to redemptive anger. So may you be angry. May you be angry this week. May you be angry in a way that brings forth the righteousness of God into the world. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough one. This can be so confusing. Why do we feel angry when we feel angry? And when is it righteousness? When is it selfishness? When does it produce life? When does it produce more chaos? Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. Lord, help us to sift through that. Holy Spirit, would you meet us, the breath of life? Would you give us your breath of life this week as, as we work, as we live, as we worship? And all these things be life to us. Thank you that you're redemptively angry, that your anger fell upon the Son, that, that he was forsaken so that we would not be, so that we would have your smile, that we would have your kindness rather than your wrath. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue in worship now through confession. We're going to respond to God's word in that way. And I want to give you a moment now for personal reflection and just asking the Spirit to lead you. Where has your anger been unrighteous? Where have you not trusted in Jesus to bring that judgment? And instead, it's been you. Have the Spirit convict your heart and spend some time in personal confession as before we go to corporate confession.
And now, church, let's pray this prayer of confession together as his people. Father, we are often angry. Our anger consumes others in our fury, but we are ultimately consumed by it. Rather than bringing order to chaos, we only add to it. Forgive us for how we harm other image bearers, and forgive us for rejecting you and your timing for the righting of all wrongs. Help us see how your anger consumes sin through Jesus rather than us, so that we might get your grace, mercy, and love. Heal our destructive anger, redeeming us, but teach us to be redemptively angry at sin, evil, and injustice, as you are so that we might reflect your glory more. Amen. Scripture says, if we confess our sins, our anger especially, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive his forgiveness this morning. Walk in his shalom. Amen. And now we go to his table. And I was thinking, I deal with anger a lot in myself, obviously, but also with others in my office. There's a lot of anger often between couples or with a person with their father or their mother and different things. And one of the things we do is we think about how you... Where does your anger come from? What brought you to this day? One of the things we look at is that in your past, your parents needed to be strong enough to handle the negative or hard emotions that come up in you. And often not, often, more often than not, parents aren't strong enough. And it's because they're not mature enough. They're, 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 their kids' anger becomes a trigger for their own anger. And so they, this escalation thing happens. Well, you, the kid's angry here, then the parent has to be here because they have to shut them down. Right, And so what's the problem there is we're youthful. Those parts of us are young. They're not grown up. And so, friends, what does that have to do with the table? The table's about maturity. It's about growing us up. It's about remembering that we have a God whose wrath was poured out on his son. That's our word propitiation. Propitiation, is, it literally means the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And it's, remember, I was struggling in Greek class, and my Greek professor said, Propitiation is the word hilarious. It's where we get our name Hillary from. It's where we get our word hilarious from. Jesus, the wrath's poured out on him, and now we get the smile, the, the, the favor of God's face, God the Father now, is given to us. And at the table is where we meet that face. At the table is where he promises to attach with you. Right? Most of our anger is about detaching. Here, he attaches with us. So today, can you see at the table as you come forward, him moving towards Jesus and Jesus lifting you up to be more and more like him, to fill you, to mature you, so that you can go be angry in the right ways as God does with us. Right? And so if you're here this morning and you don't, know, you, you don't yet know Jesus, it'd be inauthentic for you to have communion with a God as your God, not your God. And so we, we want you to know you can stay in your seats. And, and, and there's no judgment on you. But if you're here and you're a member of a church somewhere and you're not harboring anger against a brother and sister that you're unwilling to forgive, then if you're not, then come forward, take and eat. With those helping with communion, please come forward. And as I do, I want to remind you that we're going to come to the middle and come forward and you'll take a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or the grape juice and receive it before you go back to your seats. On the night that Jesus was to be betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and raised it in front of his disciples. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink of it as often as you come together. 
And we join with the saints who throughout the ages proclaim this great mystery, which goes like this. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Brothers and sisters, when you're ready, come and be fed by your Savior. continue to worship, whether you give online or here in person, remembering that God does more with our 90 than we do with 100. Amen. 
sing with every breath. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For He has said, and He will bring me home. And day by day, I know He will renew me. Till I stand, until I stand with joy before. Continue to praise Jesus for paying it all, for in our weakness, he is strong. He's so good to us, and we'll continue to worship and lift up the name of Jesus. I hear the Savior say, thy strength endures long, child of weakness watching. 